Well, I hope that you'll plan to be with us right through the fall on Sunday evenings. It's going to be uh, an interesting fall as we study together the book of the Revelation. Uh, I desire to enter into that study not because I feel like I have all the answers, believe me, but because, like you, I desire to search and to study God's Word, and I believe that the time is short before the Lord's return. There is a special blessing promised to those of us who study and who read the book of the Revelation. And as we begin in the middle of next month to dig into that book, I hope that you'll join us every Sunday night for it. Let's suppose for a moment that you were inducted into the Army. You say, well, that'd be quite a nightmare. Well, it may be for, for you. Let's suppose that uh, after you got on that bus, were taken to a camp, you entered into several months of basic training, and because there was a particular need, you were then assigned immediately to the front line somewhere. And having arrived there at the front lines, you were issued a new weapon. Uh, in fact, it was all that you were given, just one piece, one weapon. But it was an unusual weapon because with this one piece, that was put into your hands, you could do several things. In the first place, uh, you had immediate satellite communication with headquarters. Now, of course, that kind of technology exists and was important in the Gulf War, where soldiers were dropped behind the, the lines, the Iraqi lines, and dug in in the desert and uh, were able to communicate via satellite directly with their commanders. Amazing technology, but here you have in your hands a weapon that has that kind of capability built into it. And then let's suppose that with this same weapon that was put into your hands, uh, you could have instantly prepared meals. And for the Swedes who were inducted, there was a little spigot on the side for coffee so that you could pour water into one side of this little thing and the spigot would uh, release fresh hot coffee black for you to drink. And uh, there was a little uh, lever on the back of it that would spit out produced foods. It wasn't a lot, and it may not be taste real good, but at least it was nourishment that you could have there on the field. So you could have your meals prepared in the same instrument, the same weapon. And then let's suppose that the weapon in your hands had the capability to hit every target you fired at. All you had to do was to put the crosshairs on the target you were aiming toward, and uh, because of laser technology, every time you squeezed the weapon, you hit exactly what you aimed at. But beyond that, let's suppose it had the capacity, uh, this weapon that you were issued, let's suppose it had the capacity to fire over the horizon so that actually, because again of satellite technology, you were able to hit targets that you could not see. That is, they were, the targets, the positions of the targets were given to you by satellite, and uh, although the target was over the horizon, you could aim that weapon exactly where you were told to by the satellite, fire the trigger, and the result of that was that that target would be struck. You say, well, come on, that sounds like something from a James Bond movie, that kind of a weapon. Well, in fact, I don't suppose it has been created yet. But the fact is, 
that spiritually speaking, you have been given the kind of weapon I've just described. I'm talking about the God's great weapon of prayer. For this, with this weapon that you have been issued as a soldier of Jesus Christ, you have instant communications with God. You don't have to go through anybody else. You have instant communication with God himself whenever you want it. With this weapon, you have the capacity to receive nourishment for your soul. When you pray, you have the ability to hit every target you aim at. And you don't even have to be present in the same room or in the same community with that target. You can hit a target on the other side of the world with the weapon of prayer. That's why I've titled this message tonight, God's Mighty Weapon. Open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and notice what Paul reminds us of in these verses that are familiar to many of you. He says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. He says, the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every obstacle put in the way of the Christian soldier. Every false gospel that is raised against the knowledge of God. Every system of thought, every foolish way of looking at life, every idea that is false, every one of them is a target for the spiritual weapons that God puts into our hands. The weapon that we have in prayer is divinely powerful and it can destroy any of these. God gives us prayer as a mighty spiritual weapon for the battlefield of life. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is spiritual. And the goal of our enemy is our destruction. He cannot destroy us forever. He cannot drag us to hell, but our enemy can destroy us for this life as far as our usefulness to God is concerned. He can neutralize us so that we do not any longer count in the battle for righteousness. He seeks to devour us. He seeks to take us captive. And he does that through schemes and, and traps strategies that he carefully lays out in front of us by which he intends to bring us to destruction. We have an enemy. But you and I have the right to pray. We have the right to use the weapon that God has issued to us in prayer. It is a weapon that God provides to all of his soldiers, without exception. Well, someone says, doesn't God hear everybody when they pray? 
Well, of course, in one sense, he does. Because God is everywhere. God hears everything everybody says. And so God does hear everyone, even unbelievers, when they pray. But the fact is that God has made no commitment to answer the prayers that unbelievers pray. He's made no commitment to them whatsoever. In fact, in, in the providential carrying out of his purposes, what unbelievers ask for may come to pass. But not because God is answering their prayers, simply because it is his purpose. They happen to ask according to his providence. But God has promised to answer the prayers of believers. And we ought to pray more than we do. We all know that. William Carey was mightily used of God in India, Burma, and Southeast Asia, and another generation. Carey, by his occupation, was a cobbler. He made shoes. On one occasion, he was accused of spending too much time in prayer. And he was spending too much time in intercession and supplication rather than in his business and was neglecting his business. To be honest with you, I don't think that's an accusation that's ever been leveled against me. Maybe not against you either. But someone said to him, you're praying too much. He responded, quote, prayer is my real business. Cobbling shoes is a sideline it just helps pay my expenses. We can go down the list of the great saints of the past, those warriors, those men and women in other generations, as well as in our own, who have learned the secret of prayer, and inevitably they have been powerful men and women of God. The believer's right to pray Our right to use this weapon that God has issued to us is based upon our identity and our union to Jesus Christ. As I said before, God has no obligation to answer the prayers of those who are his enemies. But God has obligated himself to his people, and he invites us, call unto me. And I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. I'd like you to open your Bible again to the book of Ephesians and the third chapter where we see a marvelous verse, verse 12. Paul is in this chapter explaining his ministry as a preacher of the riches of Christ to the Gentiles. And as he talks about this eternal purpose of God... In Christ, he says in verse 12, in whom, in Christ Jesus, we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Notice that the privilege of prayer is related to our union to Jesus Christ. Why is it that we may pray? Because we are praying in the name of Jesus Christ. We are praying as people who are related to God through Christ, through faith in Him. Now, it's important for you and me to get a hold of this. 
Because sometimes we're sold the idea by the enemy that we can pray only when we feel like it. Or we can pray only when we've done this or only when we've done that. The fact is that you and I can pray anytime because of our identity with Jesus Christ. It is a privilege that is given to us. I don't need to remind most of you that there was a tremendous change in our identity at the moment that we trusted the Savior. A profound transformation took place. We touched on it briefly this morning. Let's just touch on it a bit more tonight. You and I were changed at the moment of our salvation as being one with Adam and his sin, two being one with Christ and his righteousness. The contrast between those two positions is profound. And there are several texts in the New Testament that talk about it, but one of them is right here in Ephesians 2. Just turn back a page or so and look with me briefly at these verses that begin the second chapter. And notice the contrast between the two spiritual identities, what we were before we were saved, what we are now that we have been saved. In the first place, there's a contrast in our condition. Notice in verse 1, he says, and you were dead. The Bible doesn't merely say that sinners are sick in their sin. The Bible says that sinners are dead without spiritual life toward God. Sinners are very well alive to this world, but they have no relationship to God. There is no union with God. They are cut off from God. There is death. So when we and I were unsaved, when we were in Adam, we were dead. That was our spiritual condition. But if you let your eye drift on down the verses here, you come to verse 4, and it says, But God, God intervened, you see, by grace. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. So what is our position now? No longer are we dead toward God. We are alive with Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in verse 6, and we've been raised up with him together with Christ and seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So whereas before we were in Adam and our spiritual condition was that we were dead toward God, now we have been made alive and raised up and seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places, in the places of honor, the place where he reigns in glory. God counts us as seated with him. Now, there was also a contrast in our position accomplished when we were saved. Before, we were in trespasses and sins. He says that in verse 1. He repeats it in verse 5. We were in sin. We were in our transgressions. But now, he says, we are together with Christ. We are in Christ. You'll notice also a contrast in the conduct of our lives. Before we were saved, we walked, verse 2, according to the course 
of this world according to the desires and the plans of the age we live in. We walked according to that. We, we complied with it. We were part of all of that, you see. He says in verse 3, in a similar fashion, among them, the sons of disobedience, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's before we were saved. Our conduct was that we walked according to the world. And he calls us, as we were, the sons of disobedience. We were characterized by disobedience to God. But now we have a different walk. He talks about it in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. There's a new walk, you see. Before it was a walk that was according to the course of the world. It was a course that called for us to indulge our flesh, to fulfill the desires, the evil desires of our minds. But now that we've been saved, there is a new conduct, there is a new walk. And he says it is a walk that is according to the new calling we have in Christ Jesus. Before we were the sons of disobedience, now in chapter 2 he says we've been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. A contrast. Now going back again to chapter 2, he says that before we were saved, there was an energy source that was at work in our lives. Notice what he calls it, verse 2. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan, of course. He goes on to say, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. <clears throat> Notice that phrase, working in the sons of disobedience. The word work here is our word for energy. The point is that Satan is energizing the sons of disobedience. He is their power source. It doesn't mean that every unsaved person is demon-possessed. I'm not saying that, and nor is Paul meaning that. But he is saying that because they walk according to the course of this world, this age, this cosmos in which we live, they are being energized and carried along by the spirit of, of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. That was true of all of us before we were saved. But there's a change that's been made, and he summarizes it in chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. You see the contrast? Before it was the power that was working in the sons of disobedience, which we were, but now there's a new power source. There is a new energy that God is providing to us through His Spirit who dwells in us. That power is energizing you and me. And so he says in chapter 5, be filled, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Before we were saved, we were called by Paul in chapter 2, the sons or the children of wrath. That was our destiny. We were headed, as sure as can be, toward hell. The wrath of God. We were children who inherited, deserved wrath from God. But now he tells us in verse 7, 
that God is going to show to us the surpassing riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Whereas once our destiny was wrath, now our destiny is God's kindness. And so Paul is simply outlining for us here what our change in identity means. We are not what we used to be. We're completely different. Our condition is different. Our position is different. Our conduct is different. The energy source that is at work in our life is different. Our destiny is different. All because we have a new identity, no longer in Adam, but now in Christ. G. Allen Fleece has said, we, we are not in the world bearing witness to Christ. We are in Christ bearing witness to the world. I like the difference in that statement. Because it begins with our position. You and I can pray because of our identity. Because we are in Christ Jesus, I can pray even in times when I don't feel like praying. I can pray in times when I am spiritually low on gas. Why? Because my privilege to pray is not based upon how I'm doing at the moment. It is based upon who I am in Jesus Christ. I'd like for us to think for just a moment, too, about the blessings of this identity in Christ, as if we hadn't talked about some of them already. Back up further into chapter 1. We've talked about the contrast of our identity, but let's talk about the blessings of our identity just briefly. In verses 4 through 6, blessing number 1 is that we have complete acceptance. He talks about the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ in verse 3. He goes on to say, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see, there is nothing that causes God to shun me. Because I am in Jesus Christ, God counts me as both holy, that is, set apart to him, and blameless. There is no legitimate cause of accusation against me in Christ. I am completely accepted. He says, furthermore, in verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ. In other words, you and I, by our conversion, by our faith in Christ, have been placed into God's family as adult children with all the rights and the responsibilities that come with that position. We are completely accepted by God. There's no probation. There's no period when God watches us to see if we're going to be able to, to make it. We are at the moment of our salvation fully accepted by God. We don't have to perform. We don't have to work toward it. We don't have to do something. Already God counts us as both holy and blameless and as his own sons with all the rights that comes with that title. Completely accepted in Christ. The second blessing that I see is found in verses 7 and 8, and that, that is complete forgiveness. <clears throat> he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. God has completely forgiven us in Christ. This forgiveness is based upon Christ's blood, the fact that he has redeemed us, he has paid the price for us, he has delivered us from our sins by paying 
a price on our behalf. So we not only have complete acceptance in Christ, we have complete forgiveness. That is good news. Oh, how unfortunate it is that so often we go around carrying the load of, of guilt that God doesn't intend for us to carry. Now, there is a place for guilt. That is God's red flag in our lives that there's something wrong. When we acknowledge that and find out what God is saying to us and we acknowledge our sin, there is no longer any reason. It's forgiven. It's gone. It's forgotten. We are completely forgiven by God. He does not hold our sins against us. Thirdly, we have the blessing of complete understanding, verses 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his kind intention, which he purposed in Christ with a view to an administration, an economy of things, suitable to the fullness of the times. What in the world is Paul saying here in these complicated phrases? He is saying that God has given to you and me complete understanding of what God is about in this age. It's not that we understand every little detail that God is about, but we understand the big picture. We understand where things are moving. What is God working toward? What is his purpose? It is that ultimately everything be summed up under Christ. He goes on to talk about that. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. When sin entered the picture, there was a scattering of things. Things were pulled apart by sin. But God is in the business of pulling things back together. And ultimately, everything in heaven and on earth is going to be brought as one under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We have complete understanding of that. And so we can get down on our knees and honestly pray as Jesus told us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And though we don't see much of his kingdom outwardly and visibly today in the world, we see just the opposite. We see the kingdom of Antichrist being prepared. We know that one day God's kingdom is going to arrive. We may not understand all the details that will fall out between now and then, but we have the big picture. We have complete understanding. We know where things are headed. What a blessing that is to know that God's in control and the end, and in the end, everything is going to come out just the way that God wants it to. That gives me confidence in prayer. There's a fourth blessing that I see in verses 11 and 12, and that is a complete inheritance. He says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. What he's saying in these verses is that because we're in Christ, we are going to receive a full share of Christ's inheritance. We're going to share in his coming kingdom. In that day when everything is brought together under his lordship, we're going to be there. We're going to share in his reign. We're going to share in the glory that is coming. What a blessing it is to know that. And then there's a fifth blessing that I see in verses 13 and 14, and that is complete security. Can I be sure that I'm going to be there? Can I be sure that I'll be present to receive my share of the inheritance? Absolutely. He says, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And so we have complete security in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can cause us to lose out on what God's promised us. Nothing. It is ours in Christ. And none of this is deserved. All of it is given to us by the grace of God, and that is why over and over in these verses, Paul points to the praise of God's glorious grace. What am I talking about? Well, it's the fact that our right to pray is based upon our identity. Who we are in Jesus Christ. We're different people than we used to be. We are now in Christ. We've seen the contrast of what we were and what we are now. We've seen now the blessings that are ours because of who we are in Jesus Christ. And in light of this, in light of this, going back now to chapter 3, verse 12, he says, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Paul is pointing to two different things here as he talks about our right to pray. He says that we have, in the first place, freedom of speech. There's nothing I can't say to God. There are some things that I cannot say to you that are on my heart. And there are some things that are on your heart that you can't say to me. There are some things you can't even say to your spouse, that one who is dearest to you, or your closest friend. But there is nothing that you cannot share with God. You can open your heart to God with complete freedom of speech and boldly speak with Him. Not brashly, not arrogantly, but freely. Allowing God to see inside of your heart to the deepest recesses of it. Now, how can you do this? How can you have this kind of freedom? Because, friend, you are completely accepted by Him in Christ. You are completely forgiven already for anything that is in your heart that you don't like. You have in Jesus Christ complete understanding of what God's big picture is. You can open your heart with complete freedom of speech and say, Father, here it is, and tell him. He also says that we have confident access. This refers to freedom of entrance. We have access to the king's presence. We may walk right in. He invites us to. Over in Hebrews chapter 10, he says that the way has been opened for us. God has taken out of the way everything that might have stood before himself and us. He's just opened up the way through the sacrifice of Christ's body so that now we may come with confidence to our Heavenly Father and come anytime we want to. We have freedom of entrance. I want to continue this theme next week as we talk about prayer. But I hope this evening God begins to generate something fresh in your heart and mine about the privilege of prayer. that we begin to understand that prayer is our right. We have the, the privilege of laying hold of this power.
powerful weapon because of who we are in Christ Jesus. It is a privilege to hold this mighty weapon. It is a privilege to use it. And we notice in the context here that Paul practiced what he preached. Look at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So Paul begins to pray right as he is uh, penning these words. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And then he, he pours out his request and basically his request comes down to that last little phrase in verse 19, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. I'm not sure all that that means. One way of understanding it is that we might be filled up with all the fullness that God requires of us. Paul goes on to talk about that kind of fullness and maturity in chapter 4. And he says that we actually arrive at that maturity through the ministry of the local church. That's why he gives gifted people to us in the church who have various gifts. That's why we are all gifted. We all have a measure of grace. So that as we are ministered to and as we minister to others, this prayer is answered. We begin to grow up and to become mature and to be filled up to all the fullness of God. It certainly does not mean that somehow, someday, we become just like God. Even those attributes of God which he can communicate to us in some sense uh, is always in a limited sense. But he says that there is a certain fullness that we need to strive toward. And as we pray for one another, that's one thing to pray about, that we might come to the fullness of God. And Paul says, I'm, I'm praying for every family in heaven and on earth. We need to use our privilege. We need to set aside time in our lives for prayer. We need to discipline ourselves so that nothing keeps us from becoming familiar with the spiritual weapon that we've been issued so that nothing keeps us from using it. Now, certainly not in the sense that Paul means here, but uh, in another sense, I'd like for us to pray for families tonight. Uh, we have uh, intense spiritual warfare in our church and some of our families. The enemy is at work, and his desire is destruction. Make no mistake about it. He seeks to devour. And... Uh, we need to be praying regarding this. We need to get out this spiritual weapon and put it to use. Families are in spiritual warfare, and tonight I want us to pray for families. Uh, represented here, perhaps, there are some families who are sensing spiritual warfare, the oppression of Satan in your home. Uh, if that's not true of you, perhaps you know of a family in our church or outside of our church. A Christian family undergoing attack of the enemy. Tonight I want us to pray for them. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to come here to the front, along all these chairs, whether it be for your own family or it be for a family that you know about, if you tonight would like to pray for them, to bear them up before God or to bear up your own family before God, 
I'm going to ask you just to come, slip out and come right here to the front so that we can pray for families. And I'd like to ask our staff and our elders who are here to also join me in the front. Let's do that right now. Now, in your coming, you're coming either to pray for your family or for a family you know about. And I realize that we have some who are not married. And by the way, just kneel here at the chairs. We have some who are single, and it may be that you know of some relationships, not husband and wife kind of relationships, but uh, other relationships, roommate kinds of relationships. And you know that there is warfare going on there. We invite you to come for them. Or maybe it's your own roommate situation. No one's excluded. And tonight we're praying, we're asking God on behalf of others. And I'd like for us to, all of us to pray, certainly. But those who are here in the front have particular ones in mind. And I'm going to ask that, that we just spend a few moments in silent prayer. I'm going to ask that our elders and staff simply spread out and mingle here. And if you have a need to talk to a pastor or to an elder and just to share very briefly what you're here for, what that, that person is going through that you're praying for, or what your family's passing through, feel free to just signal to them to come over and let them pray with you. Just be a personal shepherd to you tonight. But as we lift our hearts before God in quietness, let's take hold of this weapon, this mighty weapon of prayer. say again that if you're here in the front and you desire a pastor or an elder to be aware of what you're passing through or your friend is passing through, just signal for one of them to come. Let them pray with you. Father, our God, we come to you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We bless you that you have opened the way that we might come through his shed blood. Thank you for the freedom to come and the freedom to speak on behalf of our families, behalf of relationships that are under attack of the enemy. We acknowledge to you that there are many different situations represented as we kneel and lift our hands before you tonight. Lord, you know the oppression. You know the point of the attack. You know the footholds that have been gained in lives, in marriages, in homes by the enemy. You also know the territory that's been taken back from the enemy. 
You know the progress that has been made in some of the battles that are represented here tonight. Lord, you have called us to be a people of prayer and to exercise in faith this mighty spiritual weapon. In our hearts, we take aim against the enemy. We put the crosshairs upon him and upon his tactics in these families and homes and relationships. We pray against every thought, every idea that has been exalted against the purpose of God in these homes and families. Every stronghold that has been erected by the enemy, we pull down in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray that there will not be able to stand any plan or strategy or scheme that Satan has put together against these marriages, against the relationships between parents and children, in the relationships of roommates and friends. We pray that in every situation which you sovereignly know, you will bring to pass deliverance and victory. May there be grace in the midst of the battle to stand strong in Christ Jesus. But ultimately, we pray for that victory to come through. And we pray, Father, that the enemy will be totally defeated in these lives. May the works of darkness be exposed by the light of Christ. May the result be peace. May the result be restoration. May the result be harmony. In the name of Christ, we pray. And we will be careful to give you thanks. We will be careful to lift our hands to you and our voices to you, giving you thanks for the way that you hear and answer our prayers tonight. Now finish your own thoughts to God. And Lord, we lift these requests, we lift these burdens, these dear individuals and families to you in prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen. And all God's people said, amen.